0: can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm number 60 this morning, six zero. 0 So we are switching series once again, as we do multiple times throughout the year. To go back to a series we began, I guess, six years ago or so, uh, going through the Psalms. Um, and so we are on Psalm 60, Psalm 60 of 150, so, you know, next year we'll be halfway through. We're going to get there one day, unless Bryce comes in and decides, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Um, so Psalm 60, the Psalms are a hymn book. So we don't really have hymn books in our pews. We have screens with the slides on them. But the Psalms are like the ancient hymn book of the people of God, the songs that God's people would sing to give him praise. Um, and we learn a lot from the Psalms because of the different types of Psalms there are. We learn that worship doesn't just include Uh, singing of his love forever, but it also means lamenting. It also means asking how long, O Lord. There's a bunch of good and hard things in the Psalms that help us to think through things. Another reason I think it's really great to do the Psalms is because they really get to the heart of the human condition. Like, What is it we are actually longing for? What is it we are actually wondering about God um, and it helps us answer those questions as we look through it. Um, and that's no different this morning. So would you please stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 60? I'm going to read it. Um, it's not on the screen, but there is a little title here that I'm also going to read, which is, would have been part of the original Hebrew. It says, For the director of music, to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a miktam of David, for teaching, when he fought Aram Naharim, and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So here we go. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, who have You have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin and Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemies, for human help is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Please be seated. Father God, thank you so much for this psalm, this psalm of um, for those of us who feel rejected, who feel defeated. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we learn more about you through this psalm and learn more about what you want to do in us through defeat. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I tell my next illustration, I think that I need to give you a little bit of understanding of the rules of American football. Not going to go into all of it, but there's something you need to know. So uh, there's a bunch of different ways to score, and the different ways that you score are worth different amounts of points. However, there's one I want to talk about today, which is called a field goal. That is when the kicker kicks the ball, you know, the guy holds it, the guy kicks the ball, and if it goes through the uprights, it's worth three points, okay? That is a field goal. And so uh, the, the kicker for the Buffalo Bills in 1990 was a guy named Scott Norwood, Scott Norwood. And he um, was a pretty good kicker. And the team, the Buffalo Bills, were a pretty good team. They made it all the way to the Super Bowl, which is the championship of American football. And uh, it's a huge sporting event. Um, it's the closest thing Americans have to a World Cup because we will never be in the real one. And um, it, it's this huge deal. And Scott Norwood is there, and he's going to kick the field goal. And it is, the score is 20 to the New York Giants. To 19, the Buffalo Bills. So, if they kick this field goal, they score three points. There's eight seconds left. So, if they make this field goal, they win the Super Bowl. Got it? 22 20 would be the final score. But currently, it's 19 20, and Scott Norwood's up. All of the eyes of the stadium are on him. They're watching him. Is he going to be able to make this field goal? It's a 47 yard field goal, which sounds like a long way, but most of the time, kickers will make that field goal, the majority of the time. So, he lines up the kick, you know, and uh, he goes to kick it. Eyes of the world watching, immediate victory and celebration. He'll be on people's shoulders in a second if he makes it. Kicks it, and it misses. And the Bills lose the Super Bowl. They failed. And of course, who's bearing the biggest weight of the failure? Obviously, everybody on the team feels bad. You know they were just had the they had their moment they didn't get it all the fans feel bad but no one feels as bad as Scott Norwood he sits there he's, he just stands there dejected can't believe it everything was on him and he failed this is all, this Psalm this morning is for those of us like Scott who feel defeated. You know that feeling of just feeling defeated? Like everything has fallen apart, or I'm out of resources, or I'm exhausted, or I've completely screwed something up. As the Psalmist 4 this morning, now I know a lot of us, I would assume maybe all of us have not tried to been in a Super Bowl before, um, but we all experience those moments when we feel defeated. Sometimes that defeat comes from things that we have done. Right We have failed personally. On a personal level, we have failed, and therefore, like Scott, we feel like, "Where's my identity come from? Am I OK? Am I of value at all?" Sometimes it's because of sin, right? Like we, 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 we fail temptation. Like, once again, we have done that thing which we've been trying to not do, and we feel like so shameful. Or once again, we reacted in that way when we are triggered that we hate about ourselves, feel defeated, we feel powerless to change parts of ourselves. We feel like we don't have the resources to change it. Sometimes it's not just things we've done. Sometimes it's just things that have happened to us. We're defeated by life itself. Um, There's been hardship upon hardship. We are exhausted out of resources to deal with life, out of visible hope for a change This is how David feels here in this passage. David, as he's writing, he says, You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. He's in the midst of feeling defeat. Literally, he's feeling defeat, apparently, because of some battle that he has been in, which is what the title of this passage talks about. He's been in some sort of battle, and apparently, he's lost the battle. And he doesn't know what to do about it. Or he feels like God has rejected him. That's one of the interesting things I want us to note, that he actually says it's God that has been the one who has rejected him. God has allowed this defeat to happen. And he says it over and over again. You have shaken the land. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. He actually looks to God as the one who has allowed this defeat. It's important for us to note that what does it mean when the Psalms talk about rejection, Of God. Rejection by God. Because that happens all the time. If you read through the psalm book, you'll see over and over again, why have you forsaken us? Why are you so far away? Where are you? Why have you um, left us here? How long, O Lord, until you come back? Um, It talks about rejection a lot. And when it's talking about rejection of God, it's talking about one of two things. One, it could be talking about the way that God has allowed you to experience judgment for particular sins, he does this. He says, This isn't to say that judgment is permanent or that it's retributive, like God is going to get you back for what you did, but God will often allow his people to experience the guilt and the shame of their sin, also the natural consequences that come with pursuing things that are not him. He allows us to experience those consequences in order to teach us something. He also, when he rejects us, is sometimes not about our sin. It's just that the hardship we experience is him removing his hand and allowing us to experience hardship. Why? For some greater reason. And that's, that greater reason is what I want to talk about this morning. Because the psalmist here is asking, why, God, why have you rejected us? And he's not asking why in the sense of, what did I do to deserve this? He's asking. He's saying why in terms of, What is it that God is wanting to teach me through my hardship? What is it that God is wanting to teach me when I feel defeated and empty and worthless and powerless? What is it that God wants us to learn? What is it that he wants us to learn about him? This morning, I think this psalm wants to give us a perspective. It wants to teach us that when we feel defeated, God is inviting us to a fresh knowledge of his love and of his sovereign plan. He's inviting us to a fresh knowledge of his love for us and his sovereign plan for us. God's love. Notice here that even in the midst of this defeat, the psalmist never once questions whether God loves him. Even in the most dire of circumstances, David does not question whether God loves him. Verse five, save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. He doesn't question whether God loves him. He just assumes that God loves him. And so he's asking why, because you love us, would you do this? Um, One thing I want us to think about is when is it that we most often ask whether God loves us. When do we ask, does God love us enough? Or does he really love us? Does he really care about us? We ask that in hard times, right? In good times, when we are doing well, let's say you have really been doing a good job, um, you've been really successful, or you've done a really good job fighting temptation, you're feeling good about yourself because you haven't been as bad, Or maybe life is just giving you lemonade. You're feeling really good about yourself. Um, You don't tend to ask in those moments, does God love me? You don't tend to doubt in those moments, does God love me? Why? Why is it that we don't doubt it then? Why do we only doubt it when things are going well or when we're doing poorly? Is it because maybe there's part of us that believes that God's love for us is dependent on who we are or what we do? Is there part of us that believes that good circumstances are a sign of God's love and bad circumstances are a sign of God's rejection or lack of love? Do we believe deep down that his love for us has something to do with who we are? Well, David wants to challenge this belief. He wants to challenge this belief in us because he says that even in the midst of failure and defeat, God's love is not in question. And this can only be true if God's love is not dependent on us. In the psalm, David is encouraging his, God's people, encouraging us this morning to remember that even in our failure, even when we are defeated, there is no loss of God's love. And that's because we didn't earn it in the first place. Scott Norwood, after he misses this field goal, loses the Super Bowl for the Buffalo Bills. He goes back um, to Buffalo, and Buffalo has like a like a big gathering for the city to receive the team, even though they didn't win, just to to receive them and to celebrate that at least they made it to the Super Bowl and they did well. And you know, you know the players are still sad of not winning, but you know they're there to enjoy it and they're glad that they can you know give back to their city and you know it's so important to the community there but of all the people up there the one who just really didn't feel like being there was Scott Norwood right because he felt like he's ruined everything he's screwed everything up everyone is just going to look at him like he is the reason their team didn't win he is the failure he is worthless but then, quietly, a chant began in the crowd. We want Scott. We want Scott. And the entire uh, city was cheering for Scott to come up and to speak to them. They loved Scott Norwood. They didn't love Scott Norwood because he kicked the field goal and won. They loved Scott Norwood because he was theirs. He was their guy. They didn't, They. they obviously they wanted to win. They would have preferred to win, but That did not change their love for their guy. He was theirs. Scott Norwood was theirs. God doesn't love us because of our success. God doesn't stop loving us because of our failure. God loves us because we're his. We are his. We're his dearly beloved children. Regardless of whether you're, when you're feeling defeated, regardless of whether it's your fault or not your fault or Whoever's fault it is, it doesn't matter. God is still looking at you with eyes of delight. He looks at you with a smile. He delights in you. What if we took those moments when we feel defeated, when we feel empty and perilous, or like we failed miserably, what if we took those moments, not as an opportunity to dwell in our shame and to think about how we're going to fix ourselves, but to take a moment to recognize that feeling as an invitation to dwell in God's love and remember God's love, which is really hard to do when you're feeling dejected. So how do we do that? We do that by looking at Jesus. We do that not by looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves less, and looking at Jesus who loves us deeply, looking at what Jesus has done for us, the God-man, the God-become-flesh, who came and died for us, not because we were great or awesome, but he came and died for us because he saw, because he loved us. He even knew that we were going to reject him. He even knew that, they, that the people he was coming to were going to, to kill him. And he still came and said, I want you. I care about you. I love you so much, much. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, is what we are told, so that we might become children of God. We look at Jesus and we see a love that is not based on us, but we see a love that is based on his love for us. He cares about us. And this is really good news. This brings us to our second point. This is good news because the one who loves us, the God who loves us, is also the God who is in control and has a sovereign plan even in the midst of of our suffering, even in the midst of our failure. What is his ultimate plan? His ultimate plan is to give his people victory. His ultimate plan is not defeat. That is not the end of the story. The end of the story is victory. Victory over their enemies. David knows this, and that's why he talks about God's promises here in verses 6 to 8. In verse 12, he says, God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. What is he saying there? He's saying that the land that I have promised you, he's talking about parceling out land, the land that I have promised you, I'm going to give it to you. This land is going to happen. Then he says, Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. He's reminding you that Gilead and Manasseh being parts of God's people, they're mine. I love them. They are mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. He's saying through his people, he is going to reign and rule. Moab is my wash basin. basin; Edom, I toss my sandal, and Philistia, I shout in triumph. He's saying, "Your enemies, the ones who have been oppressing you, they're going to become the thing I wash my hands with. They're going to be like the thing I just toss my dirty sandals on top of. They're going to be the thing I shout over in triumph." You see, David is writing in the context of battle. He is the king, and. Part of his job as king, part of his calling as king, is to drive out the oppressive Edomites and drive out the oppressive Midianites. And he's actually living out a promise that God had made to him. Our passage this morning, Psalm 60, has this title which says it was during this battle that he fought against Aram Naharaim and this other one. Um, and we find this actual story in 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, he's fighting these um, things. These, these people, these enemies of Israel. But also, it comes immediately after in the story, after God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David. In 2 Samuel 7, it's called the covenant with David. God says this, Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. Remember, David was a shepherd, and God took him from, made him from a shepherd and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." You see, God's plan, God's promise to David, God's sovereign plan, was to create, through David, a safe place for his people. And that's what David is recounting in this psalm. The promises that God has made to his people. You see, God's sovereign plan is to ultimately take his people, and bring his people into a kingdom where God is fully ruling. There is no other thing that is, no other enemy that is ruling. There they will be completely safe from their enemies, and they will also get to dwell personally in the presence of God. That's the plan that God has for his people. So in the midst of defeat, David is actually finding comfort in God's promise. So he's actually finding comfort in the future. He knows that even if he's feeling defeat right now, this is not the end of the story. The end of the story is not defeat, but it is victory. And also, as we follow the story of scripture, we learn that our enemies aren't just external enemies, people that do bad things to us, but sin is actually internal. Sin is our ultimate enemy. It is the enemy that threatens our very existence. And what is at the root of our sin? The root of our sin is independence. Okay, Every sin that you can name, you know, you go to the Ten Commandments or whatever, every sin is a sin of self-dependence. It goes back to the garden, right? What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned the very first time? The snake comes to them and says, hey, God just doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you eat it, you're going to be like him. Right? And so when Adam need eat the fruit, what they're saying is, hey, I want to be like God. I don't want to have to depend on God to give me what I need. I don't want to have to depend on him for my joy and my happiness and my contentment. I want to find it for myself. And not only do I think, do I want to be the one who gets it for myself, I actually think I know what's better. I think I know what's better for me than he does. It's this idea of self-dependence. So whether... Whatever your sin is, it is you saying, "I know what I need better than God knows what I need, and I know how to get what I need better than God gives me better than God knows what I need right it 's this idea of depending on ourselves rather than being the way we are created to be, which is people who are dependent on God and can trust our loving Father to give us what we actually need. Why do I say that because Even in the process of feeling defeat, God allowing us to feel like failures, allowing us to feel defeated by life circumstances, even in those moments, God is driving us to a place of victory. Let me tell you what I mean. When we feel defeated, we feel without resources. We feel like we don't have the power to do things on our own, we feel empty. We feel like our identity is empty. We feel like our needs are empty. We feel like our power is gone. And in that place, that's exactly where God wants us to be because in that place we have no choice but to look to him and to grow in dependence, to be, he's shaping us back into the way we were meant to be as people who are dependent upon him, who look at our circumstances and don't see any way out of them and that forces us to say, hey God, you are the only one Who has a solution? I want to look to you. I want to trust you. I want to depend on you. Our feelings of rejection are actually an invitation to us. An invitation by God to look to him, to trust him, and to stop trusting ourselves because we do not have the power. Is it not you, God, Who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies. And listen, when he says, Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. Human help is worthless. We can't do it on our own. We need him. What I'm saying is that feeling defeated is kind of like having a crutch removed from us. You know, a crutch, like you're a cane, right? Maybe you have an injury, and so you start using a cane to help yourself walk, right? and you're trying to uh, let your leg heal so you don't want to put all the weight on it so you learn to lean on this crutch, which is great, but if you lean on it for too long, you never begin to grow back the strength in your leg. After it heals, you need to let it, let it grow back. Sometimes what God does is he actually removes our crutch. So whatever the thing is that we are leaning on that we think is going to give us contentment or satisfaction or joy or is going to make us feel full he takes that thing away. The thing that is not him that we've been leaning on. And he says, Depend- instead of leaning on that, lean on me. Lean on me. And in doing so, you will actually grow and strengthen. Strengthen not as independent, but strengthen as someone who is more dependent on him. God wants us actually to be thankful when he removes our crutches because it gives us this opportunity to grow in our knowledge of his love for us, and to grow in our dependence on his sovereign plan. Here's the good news. The good news is that defeat is not the end of the story. Hardship is not the end of the story. Your failure is not the end of the story. The end of the story is complete victory. Even this psalm right here, it's really interesting because if we did not have this psalm, we'd have no idea that there were any defeats experienced by David in this military campaign. In the passage in 2 Samuel 8, it's pure victory. It's all like all the things, the amazing victories that David had over the oppressive enemies of the Israelites. Amazing, amazing, amazing. But we have this little picture. This little moment, we don't really know what it was. Maybe it was like an individual battle or uh, part of it where the odds seemed, you know, too big to to overcome, that he was experiencing, so he wrote this psalm. But we know the end of the story. We know that the end of the story, even this small story, was complete victory. David also knew the end of the story in the promise that was made to him in 2 Samuel 7. I read the first half of the promise, but the rest of the promise is this. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What is the the promise here? God's promising that, yeah, sure, you're going to have some success as king. You're going to push out some of the enemies. And in fact, during David's reign was the most uh, successful and most peaceful time in Israel's (coughs) history. But ultimately, that's going to waste away. That's not ultimately your hope. Your whole hope isn't ultimately in you and your kingship. Your hope is after you die, one day there is going to be an offspring, a descendant of yours, who is going to reign forever. He's going to establish a permanent kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And how is he going to do it? By receiving the rod of men. By receiving the flogging of men inflicted by human hands. You see, even now to David, a thousand years before Jesus, God is promising this coming Messiah, this Messiah who would, by his death, by his resurrection, would establish a permanent kingdom, a kingdom where God reigns, a kingdom where his people are safe and secure from their enemies, and a kingdom where they live in his presence and they experience his presence fully. This is the hope for us, right? We, 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 we don't have to look forward in faith for the coming Messiah. We actually get to look backwards and we get to see what Jesus has already done for us, to see how much God loves us, to see how he has already accomplished the most important part of his plan, which is defeating death and sin. He has already accomplished it. And it gives us faith also to look forward to the way one day he will return, to make all things new, to To transform this world into what it is meant to be, to transform our hearts fully into hearts that are dependent on him and looking to him and trusting him. So right now we are currently in the in-between times, the time in between his accomplishing of our salvation and his realization of it fully. And in this time, he is using hardship, he is using suffering, he is using our failures even to call us into a greater relationship with him, a greater knowledge of his love for us, a greater dependence on him, and what he's preparing us for is eternity, eternity with him, fully experienced. And that's really good news. And so, I want to encourage you this morning, if you are feeling defeated, if you're feeling borne down, may it be an opportunity to go to him to remember his love for you, and to remember what he has accomplished on your behalf, and to remember what his future plan is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you care for us. You care for us even when we uh, question whether we're worth it. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for your love for us. May, um, may you call us to yourself. May you give us a, a more beautiful picture of who you are, what you have done for us, and uh, what you have planned for us, um, so that we can trust you more, depend on you more. Um, and just know that we're loved children of God. For this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org